Hey friends, welcome to the Redeemer Queen's Park podcast. Redeemer exists to help connect Jesus to people, people to community, and community to mission. We're gathering on Saturdays at 3 p.m. to worship God and fellowship. If you ever have any questions, or if we could be of help in any way at all, then please give us a shout at hello at redeemerqp.com. We hope you'll be encouraged as you hear another one of our Bible talks. Let's listen to the next episode. Well, it's good to see you this afternoon. I'm very grateful for an opportunity to study God's Word with you. Uh, Nearly one year ago um, to this season, we were studying the book of Ecclesiastes. And one of the very uh, popular uh, images or illustrations from the book of Ecclesiastes is in chapter 3. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, it very clearly talks about how God has different times and seasons for everything under heaven. And we entered into that, uh, that, uh, that idea, a bit of an illustration or a metaphor. Um, you know, life really is like we are living under a loom. God is spinning a beautiful rug. He's creating a wonderful tapestry. Uh, but life really does happen under a loom. Um, I have no idea how, how like visible this is, but it's the idea of strings and little, little loom things that are going to pick different strings and move them around. Um, it's the idea that under heaven, uh, without God's perspective, life in this world, it just feels like yarn is being moved all over the place and we're under the loom. Underneath the loom, um, our, our appreciation for what's going on can often be pretty small. There can be snarls, there can be knots. But if we only had that perspective to be able to see above the loom, we could see the beautiful picture that God was painting. Solomon shows us that we can live life under the loom, and one of our great threats is to just think everything's vanity. This is meaningless, just more disappointment. But if we only had that picture above the loom, we could see the pattern that God was working out. Helps us just have to recognize God has a position where he can see what's going on. We have a position where we can't quite put all the pieces together, but he's at work. That might resonate with your experience this week. That was certainly the experience of Ruth right here. Um, The setting of this story that some of you just walked in on chapter two of, let me catch you up for what's happening. The setting of the story is an incredibly dark time. It's happening during the book of Judges. If you have a Bible open, you wanted to see what Judges is about, just kind of turn a page to the left and you can get a glimpse of the action over there. In the time of Judges, it was very much an under the loom time. There was disobedience, idolatry, enslavement, repentance, and deliverance happening over and over and over again. All of God's people were on this downward spiral and the book of Judges ends with total chaos. Israel's in a bad spot, the nations aren't driven out, and we're just wondering, man, is anything good happening in here? Story of Ruth takes place in the midst of the story of Judges, okay? Specifically, we understand it to be right after the story of Samson when things seem like they're as bad as they could be. You have this little four-chapter episode, you have Ruth. So a review, chapter one, if you're wondering what's going on in there, uh, we have a man named Elimelech. He's an Israelite. He's, a, he's, he's uh, one of God's people here in the Old Testament. He has two sons. He lives in a place called Bethlehem. Bethlehem is known as the house of bread or the land of promise. And Elimelech, he gathers up his wife, Naomi, and their two sons, and they leave the land of promise in the book of Judges, and they go to the land of compromise. They leave. 
when they leave, they don't go just anywhere, they go to the land of Moab. Uh, the Moab's this terrible place. Uh, the people that live there kind of come from one guy who had an incestual relationship with his daughters and everything just kind of uh, sends on that trajectory. At one point, the Moabite women, they, they actually countered the Israelites when they were going through the wilderness. At another point, uh, these Moabite women, they seduced Israelite men and God came in and 24,000 people were slain in judgment. And these, these people like hated each other. But Elimelech, he, he gathers his crew and he leads Bethlehem and he heads to this very place, out of promise into compromise. Naomi finds herself in a foreign land with two daughter-in-laws, Orpah and Ruth. And after 10 years, her sons are gone. One of her daughter-in-laws listens to her encouragement. She goes, and it's literally this mother who's lost everything and a daughter-in-law, a daughter-in-law from a hated nation. And the end of chapter one goes like this. Ruth and Naomi, they enter into Bethlehem. Uh, Naomi, uh, her name means um, pleasant. And when she gets to Bethlehem, she changes her name. She's like, don't call me pleasant, call me Mara, because I'm better. And there she stands with Ruth by her side, a picture of her husband's sin, and she's better. Yet there's this little glimmer of hope in the background of chapter one as the barley harvest was beginning, and that's where we pick up our action today. We're able to appreciate because we have some perspective that Ruth lacks. We, can, we have some above the loomness to this. Uh, Ruth and Naomi, they're just kind of underneath. They're just trying to figure out what in the world's gonna happen next. We have the perspective from this author here, so we can, we can even show empathy to them as we read. It's in those moments when God might seem furthest from us that he might actually be laying the foundation for the greatest display of his faithfulness towards us. That's not just conjecture, that's not just hope, that's the book of Ruth. Sorrow, tragedy, looking for a triumph, and we enter chapter two. As you enter chapter two, notice these first two verses. Two widows have two needs, food and family. Christine just read about it so well for us, had two characters, major needs, food and family. Then from the, the clan of Elimelech, individuals and families, they're part of a clan. This would have been really important back in the day. Um, what kind of people group do you belong to? So you would have, you'd be an individual, but they weren't as in, nearly as individualistic as we are. They really thought in terms of families, they thought in terms of clans, and they thought in terms of tribes and nations. So we learn from the clan of Elimelech, there was a man of standing here. Wealth, probably, social status, indeed. Uh, it's actually the Bible word for great character. The same word for Gideon is a man of might and valor. The author is saying there's a guy here, his name is Boaz, and he's not just any other guy. This is a great guy. Verse two, you'll see there, God had a way of setting up to provide for foreigners. Uh, we learn about this in the book of Leviticus. There's also glances at it in the book of Numbers. God had a way of taking care of people that had nothing for themselves. Landowners were supposed to leave the outer boundary or the outer hedge of their crops unpicked. So whenever a foreigner came through, could go and ask the landowner, um, I know you're harvesting the middle bit here. What about those bits around the edge? Could I go and have some? God's always had a way of providing for the needs of the poor and it always comes through his people. But someone would even have to go and to get that. So notice in verse two, the providence of God in our everyday lives. So she went out, 
she entered the field and she began to glean behind the harvesters. And as it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. There we see it. The, the way the Bible says this, though, is fantastic. And you need to lean in. You need to get this one. Because so she went out into the field and began to glean behind the, behind the harvesters as it turned out. That's the same phrase that we would use if we were to say, you know, as chance would have it, or, you know, as, as luck turned out, or just in the randomness of it all, such and such happened. I was accounting in the, the last week how there's, uh, there's, there's so much that, that you could add up, that I could add up to, you know, as luck would have it, or as it turned out. Uh, we land in a, a neighborhood called Queens Park. As luck would have it, a flyer landed through the right door at the right time, and somebody come through. I was, uh, I was actually thinking this week, um, something about the cookies back here made me think of this. As luck would have it, Abby was one day walking by with cookies when somebody was standing at the door. And if we're not careful, we'll just ascribe randomness to that. But with the eyes of faith, we can actually see what's going on here. God knows what he's doing. God's in control. It might just feel as random as somebody just standing at a door with a flyer when somebody walks by. But above the loom, God can see the whole picture, and he knows what he's doing and how he organizes all the bits. God's always orchestrating for his people, for their good and for his glory. It's what the book of Ruth is talking to us about. So don't see the randomness of this. See the very providence of God. Sovereignty is something that is essential to God's nature. That is his kingness. That is his in-controlness. His providential care is when he works through ordinary people and ordinary circumstances to accomplish his extraordinary purposes. It's our providential God. And he loves to slip on the gloves of everyday actions and just cause a thing or two to happen. So there's two things I want you to get out of verse three. Don't worry, the whole sermon's not gonna go this slow. Um, there's two things you need to get out of verse three. First, the saying that Boaz is a relative of theirs is a good thing for them because someone is around to help. Plus, you and I totally miss this because we're living in London today in a, Jew, a Jewish audience, they would have perked up here because a Jewish audience, unlike you and me, when you say, and listen, this one was their cousin, a Jewish audience would have heard some romance is about to break out. And you and I are sitting over here. I mean, there's parts of the States. I would make a joke about Mississippi if we could all have this right here where only the thought of your cousin being attractive would make somebody perk up. But that's exactly what's happening right here in Ruth chapter two. Oh, the cousin's here and everybody's leaning in. Yes. So what's in Ruth two? So she just so happened to stumble into cousin's field. And yes, the, the interactions here, um, it might even seem a bit cheesy, like some of those Hallmark Christmas movies that are about to start running. Maybe at your house, they're already going, where him and her, they meet in the most unlikely of circumstances, you know? She's a journalist from New York, like he's a lumberjack from somewhere else, and they meet in the most unlikely of places and the cheesiest of lines you've ever imagined, and it's like, you can't be serious, and by the end of the movie, everybody's crying, like it's that. That's happening right here. But maybe you've heard it said that coincidence is often just God's way of remaining anonymous. Oh, as luck would have it, I found out. Oh, coincidence, that's just God's way of remaining anonymous. Let's, let's not miss it. He knows what he's doing. 
So let's look at the one he does it through. Look at the arrival of Boaz, this man of strength. I say that because the Hebrew word Boaz literally means strength. As luck would have it, cousin stumbles into cousin's field and then cousin comes, you know, the man of strength showing up on the scene. Boaz showed up at just the right time, as luck would have it, I guess, as well. But you're imagining dramatic music in the background. I, I'm running the theme of Top Gun here. You know, like, he's coming in. Here we are. Thank you. Thank you for Megan. That makes me feel seen right there. So Boaz, this Hebrew word for strength, he comes in riding a horse. I mean, this is Aiden Turner from, Tol- from Poldark. This is Chadwick Boson but from Black Panther. He comes in, right? And this is a man's man, right? He's not wearing his sister's clothes. He's not dabbling in some anonymous studies. This is a dude. And the text tells us he is rich, he owns fields, and everybody loves him. Everybody loves him. So, I mean, this is something I've been thinking about over the last couple weeks, thinking about this bit right here. Um, When he shows up at the office, right, rolls up, the Lord bless you. And it's like all of his harvesters look at him, no, 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 the Lord bless you, you know? When is the last time your, your, your boss ever showed, at work, uh, showed up at work, the Lord Jesus Christ bless you, and you return that? I mean, most of us are giving him a, 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 a sign or something like that, but this guy is loved. There's something about him. He has all of these employees out here, and he shows up. The Lord bless you. I'm waiting on the day I show up at the church office, and everybody turns back to me. No, the Lord bless you. And like, yeah, whatever, man, you're here. But it's Boaz. Boaz has this immense presence. That's what verse four is saying. Look at verses five through seven. Verse five through seven tells us the son of Israel sees a daughter of the nations. Boaz notices her and he asks the fundamental question in this chapter, maybe one of the most fundamental chapters in the book of Ruth, maybe one of the most fundamental chapters in the Old Testament. Whose woman is this? Who is this? This is the fundamental question, because is she mainly a despised Moabite woman? Is she mainly a stranger? Is she mainly, listen to me sisters, is she mainly damaged goods? Is she mainly someone that no one wants anything to do with? He asked the question, whose woman is this? You see to a Jewish audience, Ruth had three strikes against her. First, she's a Moabite. The people regarded her as a part of a cursed nation. Numbers 29 is where you find it. Second, she's widowed, which means she would have been regarded as used goods. No thanks. Pass on that. Third, she's poor, which would have been a sign of God's judgment. And plus, there's no way that she looks good in this chapter. She's rummaging around in the borderlands of a field looking for a meal, right? I mean, she's not even like most presentable here. She's got three strikes against her. She's in the wrong place. She's oily and grimy. Her hair's not done up. She's not wearing the right dress. She's all dirty and torn. This isn't a girl who's ready to meet her guy. There's no way this is gonna work in the Hallmark movie. She wants to be pretty. She wants to be prepared but she's out here begging for food. And here comes Boaz, a son of Israel, looking for a daughter from among the nations. The point is that she's not a picture of attractiveness or beauty, but Boaz represents a different kind of man as well. Getting a picture in this, a picture of the character of God in a man who is going to go and he's going to look amongst the nations to find a foreigner 
to claim her to be his wife. So in verse six, the overseer replied, she's that Moabite. I mean, again, it just keeps coming, doesn't it? She's a Moabite, she's a Moabite, she's a Moabite. The author continues to emphasize it for us. So notice in verse seven, Boaz begins to approach Naomi. The wealthy Israelite landowner goes over to Ruth, the lowest on the rung of the social ladder, and consider what she says. He says this in verses eight through 10. The foreigner gets one of her two needs met. She needs food and she needs family. In this chapter, the food is satisfied for. The foreigner is given food and protection. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women there. I've told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink of water from the jars that the men have filled. You want to underline that one? That's a massive standout line in its original context. It's an incredible pickup line. Don't go to another field, right? Don't go to another field. I challenge a man in here to say that to a woman when this church service is over today. Don't go to another field, right? Stay here. Stay here is the same word that you see in chapter 1, verse 14. And what happens next is that same word we see is in Genesis 1:24, that leave and cleave word from the Old Testament. A son of Israel approaches a daughter from among the nations, and he says, you stay here. You leave to me and you cleave to me. Unreal. He's saying you will be provided for and you will be protected. It was common for foreigners to be insulted, even abused or mistreated. Apparently, if we're having to have this language here about no one's going to lay a hand on you, you can imagine what would usually happen in that situation. Go and get a drink from the jars that the men have filled. This is shocking all the lines that the son of Israel is crossing to get to this woman here. It is shocking what we see here. Traditionally, the foreigners, they would have filled the jars for the women and the women would have filled jars for the men. And now we have a foreigner who's going to get to dip her cup into a, a jar that the men of Israel have filled. It's the story of Christmas. It's previewing what's going to happen in Jesus Christ. So verse 10, she bows down and she worships and she asks the question, what did I ever do? There's majestic poetic language given all through here. And then you can see it in verses 11 and 12, refuge and reward are under the wings of the Lord. Boaz replied, I've been told about you, your character. Notice what this man notices in this woman. I notice your character. I've been told about you. I know how you treated your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I know how you left father and mother and homeland and you came to live with your people that you did not know before. I've heard about this, verse 12. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you richly be rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. You have planted your life under the, under the wings of God and not anyone else. May you be blessed. Her response is beautiful. I mean, this transcends every Hallmark movie that we have on offer for the next six or seven weeks. She turns to him in verse 13. She says, you, you have spoken to my soul. We know what it is when somebody says something to us. We know what it is when someone says something to us, but they just have an agenda in play. 
And this woman looks at this man and says, you, you have spoken to my soul. You could imagine her saying, though I'm on the lowest rung, you've comforted my heart. You've spoken to my soul. It's the same emotional climate of chapter one, verses 16 and 17, when Naomi is telling Ruth, it's time for you to go. And Ruth says, no, no, no. Wherever you go, I will go. And Naomi turns to this Moabite woman and Naomi says, you've spoken to my soul. And then there's silence. It's the same moment right here. And fittingly, I mean, it's a masterful story. Fittingly, some time passes after this interaction as well. Some, we, we imagine some time passes, the day is here, and then we get around to another scene. Chapter two, verse 14, the foreigner is now served by a son of Israel. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it into the wine vinegar. And when she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some food left over. The chapter opened with this woman having two main needs. I need food and I need family. And the woman is about to sit down and she's gonna eat. And I mean, it's the first date and she is about to eat. Romance over roasted grain is what you have, not just a meal, it's a sign of fellowship, it's a sign of a heart being open to another heart here. He offered her roasted grain, he served her. Only time in the Old Testament we see this, this idea here, roasted grain being served. Boaz serves her, the Lord of the harvest, serving a foreigner at his table. This is what Christmas is about, my friends eating at the table and she is eating and she eats till she's full. And while she's chowing down, Boaz gathers the men around for a little meeting in verses 15 and 16. And the foreigner is then promised protection and provision. He ensures nobody's gonna touch her. She's gonna go clear. As the son of Israel going at great lengths to make sure a daughter from among the nations is gonna be provided for. So notice her strength in verses 17 to 18. So Ruth gleaned from the field until evening. She threshed the barley that she'd gathered and it mounted to about an ephah. Um, there's some debate here. So, I mean, you don't have to email me about it, but an ephah, as best as we can tell, was about um, half to two thirds a bushel. That clears it up. No, um, you translate that a little bit. It gets it to about 30 to 50 pounds of barley. We have an individual who started a chapter of scripture with two great needs. She needed food and she needed family. And, and, and you know what? It just so happened that later she has a full belly and she has 30 to 50 pounds to carry home. For context, the ancient Babylonian uh, worker at the time, uh, the average portion for a male would have been one to two pounds. And here she is strapped with 30 to 50. And she walks away with it. So apparently she's in the gym, she's fit, she's doing the CrossFit, whatever. So there she goes, she's on her way. Verse 19, the name of Boaz gets revealed. You and I know something the original reader doesn't. You and I have insight here. We know it was Boaz. Naomi's in the dark on this one and we're about to watch her reaction, right? So we know a big thing's about to be revealed here. So we're kind of all gathered around just 
staring at Naomi, how she's how she gonna handle this? Because we know where the food came from, does Naomi. Remember all cousin, cousin, cousin thing. Some of that action's here. So she's gone from bitterness to blessing in verse 19, in the middle of her sorrow, in the middle of her suffering, God was there plotting for her satisfaction. Last, last thing you're told, she's bitter. A few verses later, she's blessing again. The best news is waiting, it's on hold. Ruth, we know where she has been. We know who she's been working amongst. The main piece of information is held. And in this Hebrew sentence, the word, you're just getting all these words, like just tell her, just tell her, just tell her. And at the very end, it was Boaz. Last word in the sentence, the audience anticipation, we're leaning all the way there, watching Naomi's eyes, building up to the last word, his name is Boaz. Verse 19, we get the first look at this kinsman redeemer, and you're, we're gonna learn a lot about this kinsman redeemer, not next week, but the week following. This kinsman redeemer, two, two words that we need to pay attention to, kindness, kindness, his loving kindness, and this kinsman redeemer, guardian redeemer. See, my dear friends, in the Old Testament, it had to be a kinsman, it had to be a relative, someone of your same clan. The clan is important, of the clan of Elimelech, you'll remember, and a redeemer, someone who had the right to repurchase and buy back and to take ownership again. And Ruth realizes that he was not just an honorable man, but this cousin could be one of those special redeemer sorts for her family. In those days, if you were in debt, if you had property that had gone up, uh, someone else could actually buy that out for you, but it couldn't be just anyone. It had to be the right kind of person for you. You had the right to buy it, but it had to come at the right time. So it, it had to be a family member, and specifically, check this out on a kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer had to have three things. They had to have the right of purchase. They had to be the closest living relative willing to buy this. And as luck turned out, she stumbled into cousin's field. It had to have the right resources. They had to have the money to pay off the debt. But there comes Boaz, the Top Gun theme music, with fields and laborers all around, with so much food that he can just load somebody up and tell them, have a nice day. There's plenty of resource here. And you have to have the right resolve. You gotta want to do it. Here's Boaz, a relative, he's wealthy, he's got the right, he's got the resources. Does he have the resolve? We're gonna have to see. And things wait to be resolved. And that's the end of chapter two. That's why there's four. We just got to kind of find a way to hang out in this for a minute. Things still need to be resolved. It's that picture in the movie. It's kind of like the anti-climax, right? It's like, it's all coming together. It's going to work out. And then you realize it's not landing here. There's 30 minutes of tape left. It's going gonna, it's gonna to keep going now before we get to see. And just there, you can imagine it's all coming together. But two problems at the beginning of the chapter, we need food and we need family. By the end of this chapter, food is provided, but can't we, can't we begin to assume as well? It seems like family is on the way. Even though she doesn't have family, there's the promise of provision, there's the promise of protection. Weeks had passed, she's living with her mother-in-law. Boaz, where are you? So she gets some of her needs met, and yet she's still under the loom. She still doesn't have the perfect perspective to understand what everything's going on. She only has the benefit of receiving some. And for a few moments here, I want you to see the gospel in this one chapter of scripture. First, I want you to see the gospel from the perspective of Boaz, and then I want you to see the gospel from the perspective of Ruth. 
Because the gospel from the perspective of Boaz is what's happening above the loom, and the gospel from the perspective of Ruth is we don't have all of those insights, but we do know some things, and let's run it real quick together. Gospel according to, to Boaz, as you see the characters of this story unfold, don't miss it, my dear friends. God seeks out the outcast to be his family member. The son of Israel pursuing this daughter from among the nations, it is God. Boaz to us is a picture of the character of God in this story who seeks out a daughter from among the nations to be his child. He seeks out a widow, he seeks out a Moabite, he seeks out an outcast, he seeks out a foreigner. Maybe somebody's here this afternoon with something of the outcast experience. Maybe you even present confident, you present comfortable, you present clean, but you know there was an action you did, there was a place you were, there was something that someone said to you that stained you deep in your heart. You can know this, my dear friends, God is the one. God is the one who seeks the outcast to be his very family members. Look at the book of Ruth, the son of Israel, noticing a daughter from the nations? Who is, who is she? I'm interested in her. Brings her in, seats her at her table, Boaz, seeking the outcast as if she were her, his family, and he indeed tends to make her family. Notice this, God shelters the weak under his wings. Where's the blessing on Ruth? It's when he says to her, may you be blessed because you have sought refuge in the Lord. May you be blessed. Some of us are in here this afternoon looking for a place to be protected, looking for a place to hide. Look no further than what's on offer in Ruth chapter two. There's shelter under the wings of God. Every other wing is gonna let you down. Every other wing is gonna disappoint you. There's shelter under the wing of God. Notice also the gospel in here, God serves the hungry at his table. In our affluence, we find it so hard to get this and to recognize this. Few of us know what it would be like to be out of food, you of us know what it would be like to get off the tube or get off the bus in just a little bit, to go to the shop and walk in and there's no food inside. We miss this. Ruth is hoping to get a little food at the beginning of the chapter. I mean, we're talking a breadcrumb to make it another day. And yet at the end of the chapter, she hasn't just found some scraps. She has sat at the landowner's table. She has eaten till she's filled 30 to 50 pound bag of it later. She's walking home to tell mother-in-law, God's not done with us yet. God serves the hungry at his table. And God will serve you and God will serve me and God will provide for all of us as well. And notice this, God showers the needy with his grace. The abundance in the chapter, the abundance is building and building and building. She shows up hungry. She finds her way into a field. She finds her way into a house. She finds her way to the head table. She finds her way to one bowl of barley and two bowls of barley and three bowls of barley. And this is how God is with us as well. We in our weakness, we in our ruthness, we know what it is to be a foreigner. We know what it is to be on the outs. We know what it is to lack everything. And this is how God treats us. But if we could remember those words from how the chapter began, it just so happened. You remember the picture from Ecclesiastes 3 nearly one year ago to the week? God does allow things that we would never ask to happen so that we can find ourselves in situations that we could never imagine for ourselves. How's Ruth gonna come to know God unless she's first in her situation? 
And how are you and I going to know as well? No, it just so happened. That can sound so favorable and we can pitch that a bit high. But if we're very honest, those words, it just so happened. They're not always sweet. They do taste a little bitter. We can imagine, again, the words of William Cowper. He lived a tormented life, was in an insane asylum right around Bank Tube Station over here in London. He wrote this poem as one of the last things he'd ever write. It kind of brings some more flavor and some more color to the it just so happened. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and he rides upon the storm. Deep and unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and he works his sovereign will. So you fearful saints, fresh courage take, the clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace, because behind a frowning providence, he hides his smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his works in vain. God is his own interpreter and God will make it plain. It just so happens. So the gospel according to Boaz and in conclusion, um, Divya, Ban, why don't you come on up, down payment, we're almost done. The gospel according to Ruth as well. God is called our name. We are Ruth in the story. We are the outcast, we are the foreigner. We were separated from God and God came pursuing us. God absorbed our standing. He absorbed our suffering into himself and he has called our name. Just as Boaz looks out and he notices Ruth and he says, who is that? Well, so she, he calls our name as well. Notice this, God has become our refuge, church. We gather sheltered underneath his wings, even when the storm rages and the difficulties befall. Martin Luther wrote, a mighty fortress is our God, patterned after Psalm 46. Our God is a refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we have no reason to fear Though the earth gives way, though mountains be picked up and tossed into the heart of the sea, though its waters, they rage and they foam, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the most high. Though the nations, they war and people are gonna move about, a mighty fortress is our God was Luther's punchline. And for us, we can just sit in that, be still and know that he is God. He is our refuge. He is our fortress. He is our strength. Not only that, friends, God has satisfied our longings. Remember the pickup line? You stay in this field. How satisfying is the fields of our good shepherd? He knows how to feed us. He knows how to guide us. He knows where to bring us. He knows where to settle us down. This son of Israel looking at a daughter from among the nations saying, you stay in this field. God of the universe stooping down to serve us, serving us barley. He comes in a manger at Christmas and he goes to a cross. And in the words of Boaz, you stay in this field. You'll be blessed in this field. This is a good field. This field will satisfy. Other fields you might wanna run after, other fields won't satisfy. God will satisfy our longings in this field. And it's only because God has saved our soul. God had the right to redeem us in Jesus. He had the resources to redeem us in Jesus. And he had the resolve to redeem us in Jesus, to become our kinsman redeemer 
Only Jesus Christ had the right. He was our relative. He was born of a woman at Christmas. Only Jesus had the resources. He was born without sin, and he had power over death. And only Jesus had the resolve. He said, I'll undergo the curse of death itself to buy them back. Hebrews 12, 2 says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And what can make us an enduring bunch? Staring at him. And he makes us enduring as well. The whole gospel right here in the book of Ruth. Under his wings, we find eternal rest we have an opportunity to respond to this. Some of us respond to this by committing to hide under his wings and to stay in his field. Some of us aren't Christians and we're here today wondering what all this means for us. You look through Boaz to Jesus Christ. You come to him. You trust him to be your shepherd. You trust him to see you. You trust him to call your name. You trust him to provide for you. And you rest in his field and you enjoy the protection only comes from being under his wings. Some time to respond. We're going to have ministry time over here. You got something on your heart? You want some people to pray for you? I'm going to share a concern or a burden and have some people pray into that. Some people are over here. If you want somebody to pray for you today, don't leave here without receiving that. You come over here and receive prayer. I'm going to invite you all to stand. Let's go ahead and stand to our feet. God's word has been open. God's spirit's here ministering to our hearts, speaking to us and helping us today. Gospel according to Boaz, above the loom. The gospel according to Ruth, under the loom. God sees you. God knows you. God calls your name. Some time to be in his presence and to do business with him.